A number of years ago, there was a play on Broadway that was, as happens to some plays, it was turned into a feature-length movie entitled Cabaret. Uh, a cabaret is a nightclub where people go and they sit down to have dinner and they're entertained while they're eating their meal. This was so long ago, and this is even before I ever came out here, so we're talking probably 30 years ago. So my memory is very, very foggy, so don't hold me to the details or the specifics. But these are my, my impression of the movie was, first of all, I'm not sure that I watched the whole thing because it was rather dark and to me, it was kind of creepy. And the movie was starring Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli, and it was set against the backdrop of Hitler's rise to power. And again, my impression of it was that it was a rather disturbing expose on the decadence of life. And that theme is highlighted as Gray and Minnelli sing one night at the cabaret, made up with all kinds of makeup. And to me, they looked... Uh, very marionette-ish, uh, if I could put it that way. And they sang the song, Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. And it was done in a cheesy kind of manner, just like that. Money makes the world go round, it makes the world go round. And again, we're talking about entertainment, and it's supposed to be frivolous and all. But again, put against the backdrop and the whole theme of that movie, uh, for some reason that stuck with me, and I wish it hadn't, because I can still see Joel Gray's weird kind of uh, uh, look as he was singing that song. Well, it's ironic, I guess, or perhaps poignant, rather, that they would sing such a song against that backdrop of Nazi Germany that money makes the world go round. Because for a select few, and again, against the backdrop of the movie, for the select few who could afford and had enough money to buy such entertainment and amusements and all the carnal pleasures that the knight had to offer, life, in fact, was a cabaret. So you have, again, the Nazi Germany on the rise and Hitler's madness and all that, and here there would be these flashbacks, not flashbacks, but the very quick changes of scenery to violence in the streets in Germany and then back to the cabaret where everything was just kind of this ducky little party. And like I said, to me it was kind of creepy and my recollections of it may not be accurate, but that's what I took away from it. Well, consistent with a world that is full of evil and pain, the only God that truly is able to bring an escape from reality was the God of money. But the Bible tells us money is the root of all evil. Now, it's hard not to argue that money can bring out the worst in people when you consider some of these real-life, honest-to-goodness examples that we're talking about. But it's fair to say that when an idol gets hold of your life, you just may do crazy things. Not this idol, but the idol of money. So, again, these were out of the news. They're, they're a little bit dated, but still they're worth uh, reiterating. You'll see why. You know, money makes people do crazy things. In Illinois, a man who was pretending to have a gun kidnapped an unsuspecting motorist and made the, the kidnapped motorist drive him around to various ATM machines where the kidnapper extracted money from his own accounts from the various ATMs. The exact same response I had in the first service. Does that not crack you up? Maybe you don't understand. The guy 
who was holding up the person to get his money, he took his own money out of the ATMs. Thank you, Ben. A man, a man in Topeka, Kansas, walked into a quick stop. That's with a KW. It's like a 7-Eleven. And he ordered the cashier to open the drawer and hand him all the money. Well, she opened the drawer, and there was such a pittance in the drawer that the, the, the robber, the burglar, or whatever he is, tied the cashier up, and he then worked the cash register for three hours. <laughs> right up, thank you, right up until the time the police came and took him away. I wonder if he ever got reimbursed for the hours that he put in there. I don't know. <laughs> Bail money. Apparently there wasn't much of it. Finally, thank goodness, police in Los Angeles had a, a stroke of luck with a robbery suspect who just couldn't contain himself during a lineup. So here's all these guys that are up there, and some witnesses thought they'd be able to identify him, especially by his, his voice. And so the detectives asked, the guys in the lineup, each one of you, we're going to go down the line, and each one of you are going to say, give me all your money or I'll shoot. And one man shouted out, that's not what I said. <laughs> yeah. I think he got a job at the OMB with the federal government. That's Office of Management and Budget, for those of you who didn't know. Anyway, wow, tough, tough crowd. I get no respect. As Americans... <laughs> As a class, we are consumed by just all kinds of notions of money. And while it would be nice to think that we who wear Christ's name would kind of be above the fray in such worldliness, the data, in fact, betrays such a hope. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the vast majority of our decisions we make in our lives are colored greatly by considerations of money. Consider just a handful of examples. So you get up in the morning, and by you I mean me. I'm kind of betraying my uh, cheap, uh, my frugalness here, my frugality. And I walk over to the closet and I'm like, okay, um, I can wear that pair of pants or this pair of pants. I really want to wear this pair of pants, but this pair of pants being cotton linen, one, takes me a long time to iron it. And yes, I do my own ironing because I'm a little picky. You can blame the United States Army for that. Or I can wear this one that irons up much faster, and this one has to be dry cleaned. So I'm like, dry clean? Yeah, six bucks for the dry clean. So you know which one I'm selecting and wearing. I'm wearing the one that doesn't have to be dry cleaned, Okay. Such a stupid little simple example, but money enters in to the consideration. How many of you don't take forever in the grocery store because of comparative shopping like me? And I, I'm, I have some quirks. Okay, you can appreciate the fact that Barb and I next week will be married 44 years. So you can appreciate that all the more. So I will drive down. No, 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 no. She's the one that deserves the applause. Trust me. So I'll drive down all the way to Sam's Club. Nothing is 32 miles round trip, right? Think about the gas expense and everything else. But Sam's always has the best price on charcoal, right? So I'll go down there just to get the charcoal. Some of you are going, char, char what? What's charcoal? I'm a purist, okay? I use charcoal and a lot of it because we grill right through the winter. So I'll drive all the way. Anyway, money considerations. Are there any couponers in here? Oh, well, I guess bless you. Just if, if, you, if you're ever in the store at the checkout and you see me come in line, remind me of that. 
okay? Right? That you're a couponer, so I'm not in the same line. Okay, yeah. See, you're getting, you're, you're starting to feel me here. Okay. A couponer and coupon addict. Okay, let me rephrase it. How many coupon addicts do we have here? See? No, we're good. They went to coupon anon. I like that. That kind of just full. Okay, wow, focus here. How many of you ever rearrange your schedule or the route that you're taking someplace just so you can go buy a particular store because they have one item on sale? Or, again, true confessions here. You younger guys, okay, I'm, I'm speaking to you from my heart, from experience, okay? Take it from me. I only learned this like two years ago, okay? When you see the gas station sign, and it's 2.9 cents cheaper than the gas station you saw on the other side of town. Go there and get the gas for crying out loud, okay? I finally realized like two, just two years ago, okay, and I'm an old man, that if I'm driving, if I coasted, and I don't, if I coasted into a gas station, meaning my tank is bone dry, and I filled up at the station that was 2.9 cents cheaper than the last place I saw, who knows where, I'd be saving a total of like, wow, 60 cents. It's not worth that. And in fact, you're probably losing money. Okay, down, down, down. I'm feeling better. Thank you. Didn't you select where you live based on money? Or did you just go, yeah, I like that house. I don't care how much it is. Write the contract. (laughs) If you do, if that's you, I want to talk to you after the service. And who selected where they go to college today, although this has really changed a lot over the culture. But back in the day, oh, here we go, spare us, Pastor. But back in the day of prime consideration was how much is your tuition? Not whether, oh, I get a really good vibe on this campus. (laughs) Yeah, well, this vibe is like $850,000 an hour more than the other one without the oak trees. (laughs) Wow. See, I've got all this pent-up gestalt from the first service, man. So, I, sorry. Wow. <laughs> Money, suffice it to say, looms large in all of our lives. Now, <laughs> get a little more serious here if I can. Over the past 27 years, I have truly prided myself on preaching the whole counsel of God's word, the good the bad, the ugly, the controversial, the not so easy, the sometimes hard to explain, and everything in between. And I do that because that is my commitment to the inspired, infallible, and authoritative God of Word. I've shied away from nothing, from no subject, no matter how controversial or unpopular the particular thing that the Bible is talking on might be. I can't afford to concern myself with how God's truth is received or whether it's received or not or whether it's rejected or not. After all, my role as a pastor is, yes, it is to try and change hearts and minds, but at the end of the day, I can't change hearts and minds. I can't change attitudes. I can't change thoughts. I can't change beliefs. I can't correct behavior, and I cannot force repentance. Those are all functions of the Holy Spirit of God. It is my role to faithfully and diligently proclaim, again, the whole counsel of his word. The rest is entirely up to him. And while I've not ignored the subject matter that we're going to be on for the next few weeks, 
I certainly cannot be accused of always harping on it, beating it into the ground, or killing you with repetition. The last time that I spoke on the issue of money and finances at any length, other than a few mentions in the Gospel of Mark when it was about the rich young ruler and Jesus said, go sell all that you have, and he went away sad because he had a lot. Other than that, the last time I talked about this subject from the Word was 2007. Ten years ago. The time before that was 1992. So again, it's not like I'm uh, you know, trying to uh, beat a dead horse or to make anybody feel guilty or anything else. And while I am exceedingly sensitive to newcomers to our church, fearing that they're going to go away with the wrong impression. Doing a series on a godly perspective of money once every decade or longer is not exactly the hallmark of a church that is after your wallet, as you sometimes hear people say about the church, or after your purse. So let me ask you this. How important is the subject of money to Jesus? I'm going to give you a list of themes in the New Testament. And I took the biggest ones I could think of. And then I'm going to ask you another question. Consider everything Jesus said, thought, spoke about, and everything else about heaven or hell, about salvation, about sin, about repentance, about grace, money, mercy, marriage, compassion, forgiveness, or love. Would it surprise you to know that Jesus spoke on matters of money more than any of those other topics? The first time I heard that, I did not believe it. And so I checked it out myself, and I went, wow, who knew? Now let's ask that question, and that is, why might that be? Why might there be such a focus and an emphasis by Jesus himself on the topic? Let's rule something out first. We know that it's not because God needs our money. The scriptures even tell us that it's not as though God have need of anything that he would come to us for, and then the passage goes on there. Of course, that's ridiculous. He's the creator of the universe. So why might he be so focused on something that is such a huge stumbling block for essentially everyone, and I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians alike, at even just the mention of it? And it's precisely because it is such a huge stumbling block for everyone. But even more important is that it's because we tend to forget that God loves us. And you're going, wait, what? I don't, that seems to me like a non sequitur. I mean, something that doesn't follow what you just said. You're talking about money, and now you're saying that it's, it's because there's such a focus on it because God loves us. That's right. God is for us. And because he is for us, he wants us to be complete, and he wants us to be successful as he defines success. Not as the world defines it, but as he defines it. And why is that? Because there can be no lasting peace. 
There can be no lasting joy, no lasting contentment until we enter living this life the way the Creator designed it to be lived. He's given us the roadmap. He knows what He's talking about. And so He wants us to be on that road because He loves us. Because that's the only place where contentment and peace and joy can be found. And while the scriptures never actually talk about happiness, no, they don't. I know some of our Bibles use the word happiness in there. Blessed is he, and it's translated happy is the one who. Happiness really isn't in the Bible. The word is makarios, which means blessed. Unfortunate translation to say happy. But since we're all used to that, no one will be truly or at least lastingly happy without divine contentment and divine peace. And hence Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So let me, you know, let's just recall in, in, a, in a flash here the small fraction of examples that I gave at the outset about the consuming nature that money has in our lives. And while God has not promised your best life now, He is concerned that we have the best life we can now, given the struggles of living in a fallen, sin-tainted world that is unjust, cruel, ruthless, and unfair. And so again, because money occupies such a prime role in our existence, it's an enormous factor in how closely we walk with the Lord as He is ready to act on our behalf. Many a fine Christian, men and women, have fallen into what I call the chipper the chipper of life. We just had one of those out at our house. Boy, those are nasty things. Right? You put in those big limbs and they go, and it's all chips at the end of it. And many fine Christian men and women have fallen into that chipper of life more and more of what this world has to offer, which is generally, if not always, an attempt to make up for, for some kind of a lack of relationship with the living God. Because he's the only one, again, who can give the very thing and the things that we are striving to find through financial pursuits and concerns and worries. And so practically speaking, for us who live in the affluent country that we live in, there is this very hard to pin down line between what is need and what is want. But if you ever traveled outside the, uh, the United States to some really poverty-stricken countries, you know that that line is not nearly as hard to define. I have been now to both Haiti and to Nicaragua, which occupy the place of number one and number two poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And I can tell you that in the absence of all the plentiful kinds of choices that we enjoy here, the differences between want and need in those countries is much, much clearer than it is here. What did Paul write to Timothy? And I was thinking about this especially concerning Haiti. He said, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Are you content with just food and covering? I'm not. 
Now, in fairness, different cultural times, there truly are bona fide different needs today. Okay, so I'm not going to take the cheap shot there. But Paul's words are poignant, meaning we have the necessities of life, and those are the things we need to be content with. And again, while this seems extreme to us, the reality is that to millions of people elsewhere, to be content with food and covering would be a huge blessing and an advantage that they don't enjoy. And I'm thinking right now of a man that I saw in Haiti alongside the road. We got up early one morning and went out from Pastor Noel's place in Terrier Rouge. And there's people, people just live outdoors because they have, truly, they have no place to live. And this man I saw on the side of the street, and it's right on the side of it, I say street, it's basically a dirt path, was, if you can picture like a, uh, uh, a large piece of card, cardboard, maybe like a, a refrigerator box, okay? And picture yourself laying in that refrigerator box, laid flat out, and holding one side of it, and then rolling over like this onto your stomach, and letting your weight hold that roll around you. That was his home. And so I think about Paul's words, yeah, if we have food and covering, with these we'll be content. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not there. Some people are by necessity. When we look at the sweep of human history, it would be difficult to pick out a single historical event that was not linked somewhere along the line to money in some way, shape, or form. And, of course, remember that I'm using the word money in the broadest sense, which means not just currency, but anything of value. It may be a gold bar, but it may also be a cow or a herd of goats or a parcel of land. And so all of this is to help us understand why the Bible would teach that money is the root of all evil. Now, were any of you twitching the first time I said that? And now again, the second time I just miscited the biblical passage. See, we've got to be astute. We've got to listen. Because the Bible does not teach money is the root of all evil. What the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy 6.10 is that the love of money is the root of all evil. And that is an important distinction. If money was in fact the root of all evil, then it would be inherently, by definition, it would be ungodly for anybody to possess any amount of money. And that would be a theological problem of grand proportions. Why do I say that? Because part and parcel of God's many promises and benefits of living for him is provision and even abundance. What was Isaac's giving of God's special blessing to Jacob all about back in Genesis? Genesis 27:28, his blessing that he gave says, Now may God give you of the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the earth and in abundance of grain and new wine. 
God himself, when he was always trying to prepare the people to go into what was called the promised land or God's land of promise. We read in Exodus chapter 3 verse 8 that the land of promise was a land described as good and spacious land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That was literal, meaning it was a place that was awesome for farming and it was widespread and it was big and it would provide all your needs and there's plenty of this and plenty of that. It was a land of abundance. And then you got to think about all the other patriarchs, some of the even lesser known ones. Think about Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Boaz and David. They were all rich. And not only that, but the word makes the point that the riches these men had was in fact a direct result of God's blessing them. Now, if any of you are worrying, is our pastor going Osteen on us? (laughs) No, you haven't been listening up to this point. I assure you that's not the case. Who made Solomon rich, though? 1 Kings chapter 3. God speaking, I also have given you, Solomon, what you didn't ask for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So what the church that wears Christ's name needs and deserves is a balanced, whole context concerning a biblical view of money and wealth and abundance and prosperity and not some self-serving cherry-picked message that paints God as basically the cosmic vending machine or the magic genie that just appears whenever you need him to grant your wish. There are two extremes, it seems, that rule the roost today in the church when it comes to the subject of wealth and Christians. On the one end, you have the prosperity preachers who believe that since we are children of the king, meaning the king of all the universe, we should be living like children of the king. Don't worry about that place that you can't afford. Step out in faith. You're a child of the king and he owns everything that there is and he will bless you for your faith as long as you bring your seed offering to me in this ministry. On the other end of that is that part of the historical Christian faith that sees the only real right view of divesting oneself of all the filthy material things that there are in living in basic poverty with literally food and covering. Is there a middle ground? Well, I don't even like the question because it's not a good question. Because as soon as you take that mindset, now we become strapped by some kind of arbitrary standards of what is a little versus what is adequate versus what is a lot and exorbitant and lavish and luxurious. 
The Apostle Paul didn't go around blasting the wealthier Christ followers in the various churches because of their net worth. He did blast everyone, regardless of their net worth, for lousy attitudes and behaviors concerning what they had, whether they had little or lots. We really have to get past that simplistic, though popular, notion that greed somehow can be determined by quantity. Paul himself puts the issue into perspective, writing to the believers at Philippi in chapter 4. He says, look, I've had to learn how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity. In any, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. As I heard somebody say many, many, many years ago, this was not my, my statement or thought, he said, the issue is not what you own or how much you own, but what owns you. And that stuck with me, obviously. The two other times that I've spoken on this subject at length, I received afterwards many notes and emails, some of which I still have on file, expressing wonder and gratitude from Christ lovers who never before even attempted to live by the biblical understanding of wealth concerning money and the Lord and what is called the tithe. And I am hoping that when I am through the series, I will again hear from Christ lovers who again have stories to share about the amazing provision of God in all kinds of different ways once the Christians started to implement honoring the Lord with what he has given them. And I warn you that we all need the Spirit's guidance in this because our sinful hearts will only hear what we want to hear. And I guarantee you, that the enemy of our souls called the devil will try to plant thoughts or words in your mind or in your ears through this series that I've not expressed to the end that you will close your ears because the goal of this all is not to extract more of what you have to become more of what we have as the church. Although that is the way Satan will try and does try to twist it. No, the goal is to bring everyone who hears God's wisdom as he wrote to Peter about all things pertaining to life and godliness, bringing every believer into the fullness of that which affects just about everything that we think and do. If you are a Christ follower, will you commit yourself to listening, to examining and to praying through all that we will be talking about. And would you please scrutinize everything you hear from me. Check out my scriptural references. See if I'm taking them in or out of context and teaching them accurately. And ask the Holy Spirit to truly be your guide in this endeavor. And again, why do I say all of this? Because... We have such a phenomenally loving, all-powerful creator that he says that he will provide our needs for us 
But today, for a number of reasons that I'll be getting into more in the weeks to come, not the least of which is so easy credit, is that instead of really depending on the Lord to provide something that we supposedly think we really need, there's no need to depend on Him. We just go, boom, and we lay down the plastic, and it's done. And our little hole that we dig for ourselves keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And all that that means with interest and everything else. But we will have a lot more on that in the days ahead. Good place to stop. Convenient place to stop. I will also urge you and ask you to commit yourself that if you miss a Sunday, commit yourself to listening to the messages you miss online. Because this is a whole comprehensive teaching and the way people go away with attitudes and wrong ideas and everything else, instead of getting the whole package and the whole story, they get one little snippet. And it hasn't been filled in yet for the rest and for the balance and all of that. You have to. And this is for your sakes. Because Barbara and I, due to what I call blissful naivete, as very, very, very young, immature Christians, we were truly, basically just saved, living in the army on military salary, which in that day I think was around 450 bucks a month. And we were invited to go to this weekend conference put on by the navigators that were part of the people that were discipling me on the army base and all. And the man started to talk about, we didn't know where we were going to see, it didn't matter, people we trusted invited us and so we went. And we were in one of the very first rows, because that's what I do to keep focused. And it turned out to be on money. At least that's all I remember of it. And this is what he said. This so caught my attention. He said, If you want to get out of debt, he said, increase your giving. And now understand, Barbara and I were not in debt because we were back in the day. Oh, spare me the details about the good old days. But we were back in the day when if you couldn't afford it, if you didn't have the money to pay it, you didn't need it. And somehow you may do. So we came into the world as a newly wedded couple debt free. And from that day, we heard that message. We said, hon, you know, again, we didn't know enough to be, to be cynical and to be, well, yeah, but there's all these caveats and it was different and all of that. We just said, okay, fine, we got to tithe. And we started tithing from that day and we've never looked back and never stopped. And if you've read The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, my wondrous book, <laughs> One Hit Wonder, One Mediocre Wonder, um, You've read only, only a pocketful of the truly miraculous ways that the God of the universe has provided for Barbara and I and continues to do to this day. And I'm not talking about just the set of drinking glasses, which is one of my favorites, but all the way to, you know, the story about my daughter's college education being paid in full. And we still don't know by who. God loves us. And we, when we try and, 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 and shortcut what he says to us in honoring him in worship through all of our lives, including our money, he's there just wanting to be our God and show us our power. 
But when it's so easy again to go, oh, no problem, we got it. We cut God right out of the picture and he doesn't even get a chance. So I am pleading with the church. I want you to experience the phenomenal fun and joy that it is in living God's way in what he says to do. Because I don't believe that it's just for me and Barbara. And I have plenty of testimonies from others that obviously affirm that. God loves us. And he really does want to show us his awesome power and might on our behalf in walking faithfully, faithful e to him. Let me have you stand. Don Cole. Good morning. Let me uh, lead us to prayer by, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm a story guy. But uh, not so long ago, we had a neighbor that passed away, and my wife and I and others visited, uh, went to the funeral. And I, I knew this man, but I didn't really know him that well. But one of the people that did know him came to speak after the, well, during the funeral, but eulogizing this man. And he said he was his friend, his very close friend, for 63 years. And I sat through that and listened to it, and I came away with two things, because he kept us spellbound telling all these stories, and I could, I could relate some of them, but I'm going stick to stick to two of them. Because it has to do with the placement of value, and that's what Pastor Bill's talking about, you know, where we place this value. One of them was that when this man who had passed away and his very good friend used to do the crazy things that young people do, they took a straw and they found some little bait fish because they both loved to fish. And that little fish would fit into that straw, a tiny skinny thing, and it was dead and it was kind of nasty. And so we're going to have a contest. And we're going to see who can blow. If you're on one end of that straw, I'll get on the other. We'll see who can blow that fish into the other guy's mouth. Yeah. So I said, they blew for all they were worth and couldn't get anywhere. The fish stayed right in the middle. He said, let's try it again. This was his friend talking. He said, the next time the man who had passed away began to blow, I mean, uh, the man who had, uh, let's say the back. He said, no, I've got to back up. I almost ruined my story. He said, that's not working. He said, let's try to suck it back one, you know, towards each other and see who can win that way. So when his friend went to suck on it, the other guy blew. <laughs> I, I just thought that was cute. So, and I remember taking that away saying, well, what a great story. I never thought of that. But the other thing that this man said, whom I had never met, and this will kind of piggyback onto the Fairhaven campground, and he could have left this out because this was not a largely Christian group. But he said, my friend and I attended a Christian campground, and we both accepted Christ there at that campground. I went away from there thinking, boy, when, when it's all done, we say in my business, you know, the best way to measure a tree is after it's cut down. And when your life has been lived, people are going to measure you, and because God knows us, he knows the full scale of things. But the value of that man's life just went up exponentially because the things of God, you know, he had come around as a believer. I just thought that kind of tied together with, what, with ultimate value. So sorry for that little rabbit trail, but let's think about value as we pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that uh, 
we have grace. Otherwise, Lord, we would, we'd be running the other way still. Lord, please help us to take stock of where our treasures are. You've said that uh, where your treasure is, uh, there will your heart be also. Lord, please take our hearts. Make them your own this week, every day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.